Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's arrived, Tuesday Home Times Radio Sunday, and we're all hoping for a great success from our listeners and supporters of 3CR to pledge their support to ensure CR continues for yet another year. I've recorded the following program from home, but the phones at the station throughout the period will be staffed by willing volunteers and waiting for your phone calls and I'll be able to announce your promises to donate next week. So I hope you do just that. And once the money comes in, the tax-deductible receipt will be forwarded to you. I have a few donations already from people I've contacted in the past weeks and I'd like to read out the names for you and encourage all the other listeners to this program and maybe other programs on CR as well to get on the phone today between 4 and 6, 94198377 and pledge your support. So many, many thanks go out to Jim Crosswaite, Dale Hess, the Freedom Socialist Party, Bevan Ramsden, Bassam Daly, Don Stokes, Cam Walker, Spiros Gafloris, Cameron Nikolic, Tim Anderson, Marie Delora, Jan Carr, Therese Grima and Juliet Fox. So I hope in the next couple of hours there'll be plenty, plenty more people ringing in to pledge their support to Tuesday Home Time. I've been doing this program for quite a while now. I um, hope to do it for quite a bit longer too. So it's great when you get the support. You know that people support the program, support 3CR and the wonderful work that 3CR does throughout the year, every year. But on the program today, 100 years of Henry Kissinger with academic and writer Inoi Kampmark. Lee Tan, talking about the son of a Malaysian bodyguard to Prime Ministers and Kings, who is detained in Sydney while facing the death penalty as home, has pleaded for Australia to give his father a second chance. Then a music event at the end of the month to raise funds for the Refugee Action Collective with Tom Freebig. A peace conference in Vienna, which nearly didn't happen. I'll be speaking with anti-war activist Nick Mottern from the group BanKillerDrones.org. So let's get on to the first part of the program. And of course, it's Mr. Kevin Healy with this week that was. A week, Jane Lister, when reserve losses bank supremo Philip laid workers low through the goodness of his big, generous heart, again laid workers low, which he pointed out was for their own good, and his generosity was supported by all the great economists who comprehend and practitioners who understand the greatest little economic order of them all, the delicate flower that is the economy, who agreed laying workers low was for their own good. 
As yet another rate rise hit their pay packets and repayments, Philip Property's sage advice on how they could survive all this. Cut your spending, well, other than on those repayments, stop spending money and work harder. Uh, so if we work harder, our caring employer will pay us more, Philip? Certainly not, and I certainly hope not. That would clearly be inflationary, given the price of labour is the real problem here, the real problem poor caring employers have to deal with. No, just work harder. Uh, but you also say more workers must be out of work. Unemployment must rise also for their own good. So you're asking people not to work. True, those in work must work harder and we must have more people out of work. And how fortunate are they, because when I say cut their spending, they have nothing to worry about uh, because they've got nothing to spend. Exactly. Uh, so, Philip, the interests of caring employers, the caring business class and their profits, is more important than people starving and unable to pay their bills? That makes me seem uncaring, and yet I urge people to starve and cut their spending and not survive on New Start and work harder because I am a very caring person. I care about the economy, for instance. Beautifully spoken, Philip. Uh, thank you. A pleasure. And here, the benefits of a socialist government, the authority of a socialist government, came to the rescue. Concerns about more and more mortgagees unable to meet their ever-increasing repayments assuaged by big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital. Uh, I urge the banks to, uh, to be more understanding and compassionate, he pleaded, showing he's got the situation under control, problem solved. Because who would ever suggest the great banks are anything but understanding and compassionate anyway, or, or they'd ignore Jim's plea. In the I seem to have a memory lapse department, did have one champion this week, or workers did have one champion this week, who attacked the socialists by declaring the 5.75% crippling wage increase for the lowest of low paid meant real wages were falling further behind the cost of living. The socialists were failing workers. Yes, that champion of working people, caring business class shadow minister for a few things, Michaelia Kosh, the workers, who also said, and here's where the, uh, I seem to have a memory lapse comes into it, said the caring business class hayseed and sheepship coalition over the 10 years had always fought for maintaining workers' living standards. It, it's amazing how some things just seem to escape the memory, slip the mind. In, in fact, I could have sworn, but no, must be wrong. After all, Michaela had a couple of stints as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations and did so much for workers' living standards, for workers generally, and for evil unions, even though she knows how evil, evil they are. Although the confusion we amateurs in this business of business supper was regenerated when another great practitioner whose views we admire, Jerry Harvey for me and lots more than Harvey for me, said the wage increase for the lowest of Michaela saw as grossly inadequate, showing, by the way, Michaela agrees with evil union boss Josh Cullinan, who also said it was inadequate, or Josh agrees with Michaela, I'm sure he is a long-time admirer of her, but Jerry said it would push up prices, make life difficult for businesses like Jerry's ubiquitous advertiser, and stimulate inflation, forcing people like Jerry to increase their prices, something which would break poor Jerry's heart, poor Jerry, showing how selfish and anti-trubler was he those lowest of low paid are. 
And spare a thought for poor BHP, the big true blue Aussie, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, complaining that being forced to pay equal pay for the same work would increase its wages bill by $1.3 billion, leaving, as we said a couple of weeks ago, simple minds to suggest the only logical conclusion is it's ripping its own labour hire subsidiary workers off by $1.3 billion. While obviously there must be a much more complicated explanation like it's ripping off its labour workers by $1.3 billion. And it gets worse for bloody huge because it's also been sprung underpaying workers $430 million, inadvertently of course. All of that over and above or below, depending how we look at it, the normal exploitation inherent in the employer-employee relationship. So, as Bloody Huge Profits complained, not only would it have to pay workers equal pay for equal work, it would have to find millions to reimburse those workers. The socialists are screwing us. The pendulum has swung far too far toward the evil trade union movement. And the great resource giants urged the government to shelve the same job, same pay legislation because it would remove the flexibility they so cherish and destroy productivity. Goodness, doesn't paying workers have serious social implications? Leading the socialists to display their usual courage under fire, as they announced at the weekend, they may exclude the great resource BMOs from the legislation because they would suffer serious profit implications if they couldn't pay workers not the same pay and conditions for the same work. Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin's dedicated campaign to educate Victorians to the evil of the pejorative dad and the socialists, very, very slow learners, these Victorians, reached screaming point Wednesday with, You're right to know! Big cross through the no, K-N-O-W, and huge no, N-O. The government daring withdraw advertising in the whopping sin. After all it does to inform people in a balanced and objective way. Well, it is ending advertising in all print media, but Lord Rupert's team seemed more concerned about one particular print medium. Then next morning, why do we have to suffer? Screaming at us, P1. No, no, not the whopping sin, suffering without government advertising, but this time, Dan was the reason a serial killer's victim's family and friends were suffering. Is there no flaw to the depth of his evil? Declared over at least 20 years by the whopping sin as the most evil woman in Trublawazi, Kathleen Folbig was pardoned after a mere 20 years locked up. The whopping sin now, without blushing, declaring her a wonderful person who didn't deserve all that. Ditto last week after telling us for years war criminal murderer trained killer Ben Roberts smite them was arguably the greatest true blue Aussie who ever lived. No, no, not arguably ever. For going off and slaughtering threats to true blue Aussie like evil Afghans and evil Iraqis undertaking dangerous activities like shopping or playing with their kids. Then again, without blushing overnight, he was the new villain, replacing Kathleen as true blue Aussie's most evil person. Still, we suppose with the whopping sin painting her for at least 20 years as evil, Kathleen was fortunate compared to 12 people in Connecticut exonerated and declared not guilty after all after being convicted of witchcraft. Just a pity their pardon came a touch late as they were executed 400 years ago.
we know the legal system can be slow, but that's ridiculous. Nonetheless, two great men, victims of modern witch hunts, former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trump or the Paw, and her, as it was then, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Supremo Boris. Poor, innocent, all-humility Donald, revealing the investigator's wife was a trample the poor hater, and he is demented. So it's hard to see how those charges can stick when Donald tells the court that. And poor Boris resigned after being shown the report of an inquiry into a few parties at Downing Street to help them get through the COVID crisis. Obviously abashed by any suggestion he, th he knew what he thought was not a party, just may have been a party. What thanks for their invaluable service to the economic order that is the status quo. Still hope they can squeeze the presidential desk into a prison cell. Despite the above, Lord Rupert does know even when he sees it like evil China along with our politicians who know because our very, very, very close friend, the US of, as long as we do what it tells us, told us. But cynical as we might be, the proof was in the interview this week where the commentator from Beijing asked why evil China was so nasty to the US of, replying, how's this for threatening language, listener? Just who has bases and merchants of death merchandise in whose backyard? when we know the US of has no choice but to have bases just everywhere and has to challenge evil China in waters and airways surrounding evil China because evil China has cunningly located aggressive threatening bases in, wait for it, in China. That would make it dumb to challenge evil aggressive China from way over in the US of, train killer expert Chuck Slaughter explained. Meanwhile, the U.S. of Secretary of U.S. of World State, Blinken We Shoot, went to explain to its very, very close friends in the Middle East, like those bastions of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi and Zion, that although it says it is the Pacific and China power, it is also the Middle East power, and also the European power, and, well, the power, wherever it has trained killer bases and arsenals of merchants of death, merchandise, and to be fair, it's hard to think of where it hasn't. Some cynics say, how would the US of reactive China set up bases in Cuba and Canada and sent military ships and aircraft to the waters of California or New York, as if the US of would treat it as aggressive, whereas we know they would be welcomed with open arms. Arms like bombs and aircraft carriers and killer jets and killer drones and trillions of dollars of merchants of death merchandise. And finally, to those who carry on about Trublawazi being a pawn and acolyte of the US of rubbish. Why, Trublawazi has independently decided to send a few old used train killer planes to good, good Ukraine, and the US of has told us we can as long as we meet certain conditions it has imposed on us. That'll put those carrying on about obedient, groveling, porn acolyte in their place, on which Hope 3CR got the US of's permission to conduct this radiothon. Let's test it by making a donation and seeing what happens. Good afternoon. Well, I'm pretty sure that the powers that be in the United States are pretty busy with other issues right at this moment. So let's get on with the radiothon. 9419-8377. 9419-8377. And thank you.
The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Join the New International Bookshop on Saturday, June 17th at 9am for the annual Big Red Book Fair. Thousands of books of all genres at a flat rate of $3. More deals include $1 zines and journals, $2 selected fiction and 10% off new books. Meet other lefties and find rare classics for low prices that are only available at the New International Bookshop. Located at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, Saturday the 17th of June. The New International Bookshop is a 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Hi gardeners, it's time to get ready for the Gardening Show's annual Radiothon extravaganza. It all takes place Sunday the 25th of June, 7.30 to 10, when you can help your favourite gardening show grow. Stay tuned and call in on 03 9419 for great deals on organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions and new green-focused book titles. Or make a tax-deductible donation today and support The Gardening Show by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Dig deep for the 2023 3CR Gardening Radiothon Show. 7.30 to 10, Sunday the 25th of June. We need your support to keep great gardening radio on the airwaves. I love trees with all their lovely leaves Lifting up their branches to the sky Hey Anne, mm. where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio, Radio MMT. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. The second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio, Radio MMT. On the program last week, we heard from former... U.S. Army Colonel and former diplomat Anne Wright speaking about a letter published in the New York Times calling for a swift diplomatic end to the war in Ukraine. Anne was one of 14 signatories to the letter which labelled 
the war in Ukraine as an unmitigated disaster. Today, a delegation of Ukraine peace delegates preparing to travel to Vienna to participate in the International Summit for Peace in Ukraine, organised by the International Peace Bureau, calling for a moratorium on drone attacks and immediate negotiation for ceasefire and open negotiations to end the war. One of those attending the summit was Nick Motten, co-coordinator of the BAN Killer Drones organisation. Nick, the focus today is the quest for an end to killer drones and an end to the war in Ukraine. But you have dedicated many years of your life to promote not only peace, but peace with justice and an end to inequality and hunger. When did the campaign against killer drones begin for you? Over 10 years ago, I got very interested and concerned about drone warfare. Uh, There was a company near the town I live in at that time, and they manufactured the racks that go into the wings that hold the missiles and launch them. And so I was writing an article about that company, and then I learned more about, you know, weaponized drones. And it became clear to me that this was a kind of warfare that would be very appealing to to generals and politicians, but very, very dangerous, you know, in spreading war. And the whole concept of basically spying on people, stalking them over days, weeks, months, and then killing. It's a very unique, intimate kind of warfare that also makes powerful people feel they can do things without any consequence because they're not sending soldiers or, you know, or airmen into the line of fire. And so it can be popular with their citizens and, uh, of course, terrorizing and deadly to the people on the receiving end of it. Are you aware of how widespread the use of killer drones is at the moment? Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to tell, but I think the most current example that people are aware of is, is their use in the Russia-Ukraine war. And there's a, there's a whole variety of kinds that are being used there. Some of them are like the, they're miniature versions of the U.S. Reaper drone, where Reaper drone has a wingspan of 77 feet. There are some Turkish drones that have a wingspan of 30-some feet. And, and those can be equipped with missiles just like, you know, the, the American drones can be. And they can be flown over different possible targets and see to some degree who they're going to attack and follow them. And the Turks developed these to use against the Kurdish minorities. Before that, the U.S. was providing surveillance, drone surveillance for the Turks. And then the Turks built their own drones where they could do the surveillance and the killing all, all at one time. Those drones became very popular, if you want to put it that way, because they were less expensive than what the Americans were producing and the, and the Israelis cheaper than those. And so they've been used in Libya in uh, a war between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. They've been used in Ethiopia. And now they're being used in, uh, in Ukraine. The, the Ukraine government has bought a bunch of them from, from Turkey. On the other side, the Russians have bought 
drones that are smaller that are called kamikaze drones. In other words, you can fly them, you can steer them and view your target and then crash the drone into the target where it explodes. And so that type of drone has been used. Smaller versions have been made and and used in in Yemen. Uh, They've been used in in a number of countries, really. They were used, homemade drones were used by Islamic State against uh, Iraqi and U.S. forces in in, uh, Mosul and Iraq. In uh, Ukraine, you have drones like the ones people use here for recreation. You know, these four quadrocopter, I mean, there's varying sizes of of these. They're mostly made by a company called DJI in China. But those those can be fitted to uh, carry hand grenades or or small bombs, and as well as doing surveillance being used in Ukraine also. So the Ukraine war is in some ways a, a testing ground for not only the drone attacks, but for electronic equipment can be used to jam the electronics of of the drones and for small missiles to knock down the drones, this kind of thing. So that's probably the most active war zone where drones are being used right now. Now, in a couple of days, you're off to Vienna for a peace conference. Who's organized that and what do you hope to achieve? being organized by the International Peace Bureau, and we anticipate there will be several hundred people there at least, in addition to those who will be watching it on Zoom. The purpose of the conference is really to build public pressure for negotiations to an end to the Russia-Ukraine war. Our purpose in going to people working on the drone ban treaty is to be in touch with organizers from other countries to see if there are other people who want to join with us in building a campaign to get an international treaty that bans weaponized drones. So far, we've had a favorable response from people in Germany and and people in the United States. I would like to talk with people, particularly from Africa and Latin America, because these places are hugely wealthy in resources, and they're really in the crosshairs of of these corporations Um, and these wars that we've been having are about fossil fuels and minerals and other things so most of these countries don't have money to buy these drones they have had a lot of experience obviously of people of color being attacked by these drones over you know and poor people in the last 20 years and so it's something that is very felt in terms of a threat uh, in other countries where people here might not feel a threat that way. Although when we had the George Floyd riots and Black Lives Matter protests too, when I would say riots, they were perfectly legitimate protests. The FBI and other police agencies did send surveillance drones uh, over these protests. I actually, I'm Rather than say the FBI, I'm not positive about that, although the FBI admits to using surveillance drones. They don't say where or, or when. I think the U.S. Marshals Department used uh, drones for surveillance of protests 
in Washington, D.C. So many people feel threatened by that. But I, I think people here don't feel threatened by having weapons on drones. They, they think that happens, I think, in other places. You'll be at what is called the International Summit for Peace. Who will be there with you, apart from Germany? I think we'll have support from the United Kingdom, but we don't have any endorsers yet from other countries because we really haven't made any kind of contact with people in a personal way from those countries. And that's why we're going there, because we want to establish these relationships that, you know, we can build on. I think that we are going to be uh, successful in, 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 in getting a start with that. So this is just the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the International Peace Bureau. Well, I, I know very little about it, except that it, it, it has a, a wide outreach uh, in Europe and in some other countries, uh, not so much in the United States. It's been around for a very long time, up until I think even before the Second World War. And it's always been a, a basis for organizing to try to keep peace and try to protect human rights, but don't have any personal knowledge with their operations. I know people who have worked with them who a good deal of respect for them. So this is working towards a campaign for a global ban on weaponized drones. You're also calling for immediate negotiations for a ceasefire and negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. Can you talk about that aspect? Uh, one, one of the things that it appears possible or, or it certainly would be desirable if the Ukrainians and Russians would agree as a, as a beginning to, to stopping this war, would agree to stop using weaponized drones because in some ways they seem to have some parity. All these, all these drones are doing are spreading war into other places. They're not really doing anything to move things in the, in the right direction. And it's a kind of weapon that really encourages very irresponsible behavior because the you know, generals or, or politicians who want to use these things feel like they're, it's going to give them a leg up that somehow this, this new technology will, will you know, kind of save the day and it will also keep them from having to send troops over to do whatever. But it's also true that it means war goes into places it wouldn't go otherwise because nobody would send troops there. And it can prolong these wars because you feel like, well, I can just keep attacking without risking troops. And these are relatively inexpensive things. And if, if it weren't for drones, I think the Afghanistan war would have ended a long, long time ago. But this capacity to kill people, you know, remotely at arm's length, so to speak, is a very beguiling, fantastical idea for military people. They think this is going to help them somehow, and it actually causes things to go on longer and spreads hatred. So we're hoping that we can, you know, put, we put out a press release about perhaps both sides agreeing on a moratorium on the use of weaponized drones. We are hoping we can include that, get that included in the final, you know, statement coming out of the conference. It might seem far-fetched, 
but when things are this fragile and deadly, you never know when something will be appealing to people. I've spoken to people about this before, but it's definitely not a, a fantastic idea for the operators of these drones who sit in different countries and target people and the psychological and health problems that they're facing now and will face in the future. Yes, there's no question about that, but it appears you know, from comments that have been made by former FBI director and other people that they fully understand that a number of drone operators are going to experience emotional, psychological problems and problems of conscience, but they are willing to sacrifice these people in order to use this technology. Role is there for the United Nations? Well, I think the, the United Nations is a place where just like with the uh, nuclear test ban treaty, that there can be a, a consensus, even though, even though it's not universal, a consensus that this is a weapon that should not be used. In the same way, there's been a consensus about landmines, cluster bombs, nuclear bombs. And it doesn't mean that some com countries or groups won't continue to use them, but they use them with the knowledge that there's been sanctions, you know, that, that, there, that these are not acceptable weapons and they use them in, in spite of that and it gives more power to a critique of their behavior than if there's, if there's no treaty at all behind this. And bit by bit, you know, the anti-nuclear weapons uh, organizers are able to use the ban to educate people uh, in the United States and other places. So. It's very helpful right now. Veterans for Peace is sending around a boat called a sailboat called the Golden Rule along the East Coast. They've been on the Mississippi River, they've been on the West Coast, and they're very popular with people to as a symbol for opposing nuclear weapons. At one point, the Golden Rule was attempted to sail it into a nuclear test area in the, in the 60s and 70s. So having that treaty where you can say to people who, who come on the boat, there's, there's already a treaty. These number of countries have signed this. We need to have the United States sign it. It, it gives it a legitimacy and a, and a, and a real possibility that it hadn't existed uh, before the treaty happened. And we have to acknowledge also, Nick, that you are co-coordinator of the Band Killer Drones organization, but there's a lot of signatories from the United States and possibly Germany to this conference. A lot of organizations in the United States who are anti-war. Yes, yeah, that's right. And, and, and band killer drones, we do work with and assist people in various parts of the United States who are conducting protests at drone bases like Creech, Air Force Base and outside Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. We were just in April uh, protesting at Holloman Air Force Base outside of Alamogordo, New Mexico. There's been a long-standing protest of drone attacks and training in uh, Syracuse, in the, outside Syracuse, New York. And then there are other bases. There's 20-some drone control bases in the United States, but we haven't really been able to find people to organize it, all of them, but there are 
at least a half a dozen others where protests have been held within the last few years. And, and, and the purpose of going there really, uh, you know, you mentioned before the drone operators and the suffering that, that many of them experience. Our purpose in, in going to the drone bases is to remind those people of consequences who operate the drones and to speak to their consciences. And we don't know how that affects their decisions when they are doing their jobs, but it could cause them to maybe not launch a missile or a bomb at a certain time. So we feel that speaking to the drone operators directly, especially in the face of Congress, basically wanting to ignore this for the last 20 years, is a way to go that's practical. I hope you have a very successful time in Vienna. Thank you very much. We're, we've got our fingers and toes crossed, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I think that the only thing I'd like to, to add is that it's very, very important for people who are in developed countries who are not involved with, with war to be able to put themselves in the place of people who are on the receiving end of war and, and on the receiving end of drone attacks, where you have in a number of countries now, people who have been afraid to uh, go out of doors uh, after a drone attack, and maybe for, for weeks and months at a time when this has happened in their community, and put themselves in the place of these people who really have a much lower standard of living than we do, and imagine if one of your family members was removed from you. In the last year, we at Van Killer Drones raised money to help a man named Adele Almanthari come from Yemen to Cairo for operation to save his leg. Adele was involved in March 2018 in a drone attack. He and his four cousins were traveling in a car in Yemen to go some negotiations over a land deal. It was struck by a Hellfire missile. His brothers, his cousins were all killed. He was there. He saw one of them decapitated in the car. I mean, and so right now he's in, he's in Cairo. He's undergoing physical therapy after three operations to, you know, restore circulation in his legs to, to uh, deal with burns he had and, 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 and other things. The United States government uh, has been appealed to for two years to provide him with compensation that he's really due under the provisions of the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the funding for, for the Pentagon. Pentagon, even though Congress people have been in touch with them, has refused to recognize that he, that he has a case. Now, Reprieve, which is, has been representing him, it's a, it's a law firm based in the United Kingdom, and they have people working in, in Washington. Now they're undertaking a, an email, Twitter, Facebook campaign to try to put pressure on the Pentagon. And so this is the kind of thing that has happened over and over again. His case is, is not unique. It's, it's very typical. In prison right now, in Marion, Illinois, federal prison, uh, there's a man named Daniel Hale. Uh, he was involved with the drone program. Uh, he released certain documents that showed the failings of the drone program, showed how people were being targeted wrongly, showed how a certain study, nine out of 10 people who were killed 
by U.S. drones were not even people who were targeted. So he was charged with, uh, with espionage, releasing, you know, these documents. And so he got 48 months in, in federal prison. And I think he's probably more now, more, more than halfway through his, his sentence. But he's in a maximum security prison in Illinois for doing nothing more than telling the truth about what was going on and what continues to go on. And so I think people here in this country, if they put themselves in the position of other people under attack and understand that our government continues to suppress information about this and to help the people under attack, it changes your point of view about what's going on and what can go on and, and even more so. And that's what we're trying to do with this treaty. It's to turn this thing around and put, put this monster back in the box. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I recorded that interview with Nick Motto. Nick is the co-coordinator of bandkillerdrones.org, speaking about the Global Peace Conference schedule for Vienna. Just 48 hours before the conference, the venue host abruptly cancelled, quoting a press release from the organisation World Beyond War. Peace, it seems, cannot be discussed especially peace in Ukraine. The news is a disturbing step in a growing trend. Fortunately, a new location was secured in Vienna, but not before a smear campaign against the summit had been launched. I'm hoping to speak to Nick again when he returns to the US after the summit. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Radiothon 2023, happening again indeed. Everyone come along and pledge with me. 3CR Radio is truly magical. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Stay tuned. Stay radical. It's time to pledge your donation to do so. Go to www.3cr.org.au People remember the good things that you do. The world will embrace you like I always do. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Every Tuesday at 9.30pm on 3CR, 8.55am, 
The Greek Resistance Bulletin brings you news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek, news from the anti-fascist and anti-racist front, and news from actions and political initiatives from below. Κάθε τρίτη βράδυ, 9.30 με 10, στον 3CR 855 AM, η εκπομπή Greek Resistance Bulletin σας παρουσιάζει στα ελληνικά και τα αγγλικά νέα από την Ελλάδα των κινημάτων, νέα από το αντιφασιστικό μέτωπο, νέα για τις δράσεις και τα εγχειρήματα από τα κάτω. Greek Resistance Bulletin, σπάζοντας το μονοπόλιο της ενημέρωσης. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Now to the multi-billion dollar one MDB corruption scandal in Malaysia for which the 69-year-old former Prime Minister was jailed in 2022 for 12 years. But there's another side to this story, and this time with an Australian connection, where a convicted killer has been languishing in Villawood immigration detention since 2012, following his conviction for murdering and blowing up the body of a Mongolian translator. To join the two together, I'm speaking with Malaysian-Australian activist Lee Tan. Lee, how far do we go back for this one? Oh, yeah, it went back to when Najib Razak, who was embroiled in the one MDB financial scandal that rocked the financial world internationally. So it happened in the, what, 2000, since 2009, when Najib Razak became the prime minister of Malaysia. But this particular scandal with the Mongolian translator happened when he was the defense minister yeah over some submarine deals with the french <laughs> yeah dodgy french submarine deal i think it was a scorpion submarine or something like that the guy who is now detained in uh sydney siru azauma who is now languishing in uh the sydney detention center he and another guy who is still in malaysia i think under detention were responsible for the killing of a Mongolian translator, Autantunia Sharibu. This Mongolian translator was believed to be a lover for the prime minister, although she was uh, officially known as a lover for one of Najib's uh, closest ally, Baginda Raza. But the way Autantunia Sharibu killed suggested that it has very, very high level, well, what do you call, command or approver, because she was killed first, I think, by um, uh, from gunshot wound, and then they disposed of her body using a very high-power military-grade explosive. <laughs> 
known as C4. So, I mean, it was a very horrific way of um, silencing somebody who's, who was going to expose the big That's the background to why Ciro eventually escaped to try and seek refuge in Australia. Because in Malaysia, if he's found guilty, he would be hung or, you know, he would be punished with uh, the death penalty. So he's looking mm. for the Australian government to give him a second chance? Or his son is asking the Australian yeah, government? Well, his son is zero, escaped to Australia, mainly because Australia is against capital punishment. So he came here to seek asylum. But because of what he knew and what he was involved uh, in, it's very highly politically sensitive. So far, he, in some way, although he's been detained, he has the protection of the Australian authority in that, you know, he's still alive today. And yeah, his son obviously is pleading for his, uh, you know, acceptance because eventually uh, the government would process uh, his application for asylum. And if he's being rejected, then he would be forced to return to Malaysia to face uh, a possibly, you know, a possible death penalty. I guess there is also another way to seek pardon through the Malaysian king. But the current Malaysian king came from the state of Pahang, where Najib was, is born. And, you know, the, the king in Malaysia at the moment and Najib, they are very close, closely linked through, you know, the kind of elite family in the same hometown. Yeah, so difficult in Malaysia because, yeah, because of the political links and connections. How much do the people of Malaysia know about this case and the kickbacks? It's a very widely publicised case, thanks to online media. Um, yeah, it is actually a case that is at the talk of the town, so-called, for years, until Najib and Rosma was, were defeated in um, the election in 2018. And now, of course, Najib is languishing in jail in Malaysia for the 1MDB scandal. People believe that, you know, the murder of Atantuya Sharibu, the Mongolian translator, has been ordered uh, either through Najib or uh, Rosma, the wife. Uh, Najib was, of course, you know, then the, the defense minister, so he has access to the, the type of... Um, military explosive responsible for the building of um, Asantuya's body. So yeah, it, it is a very widely talked about issue, you know, that shocked the nation just as much as one MDB. And I think it was in 2015, I was in Mongolia for a meeting, yeah, for an NGO meeting. And I met with people, you know, people who have connection with the government and it too had rocked the Mongolian public because, you know, this is a pretty big scandal where one of their nationals actually, you know, was brutally murdered in a country like Malaysia. Sadly, for the Sharibu family, uh, the youngest son of uh, Atantuya died at the age of 15 back in 2019. So, you know, they still are seeking justice for her death. And how are they seeking justice? 
they have appealed to the Malaysian court for the case to be reopened because the case was closed. Of course, you know, back when Najib was the, the prime minister. So the case was reopened during the, the brief well, election victory in 2018 when Mahathir was the prime minister. And, you know, because Mahathir and Najib were kind of rival in those years. So the case was opened. The trial still hasn't gone ahead. So the case is still active in Malaysia. Now, Najib was sentenced to how many years jail? 12 years yeah. imprisonment, yeah, for his role in uh, uh, setting up the 1MDB fund, you know, investment fund which he then squandered invest, and divest in different country under his personal uh, name. There's still many other charges that has yet gone to the court. So his case is still pending in court while he's already been jailed. It's not stopping him, though, trying to get a pardon, is it? No. I mean, that's a fear. There's been petition going around in Malaysia for the people to demand the king not to give him the political pardon or whatever pardon, or palace pardon. Yeah, and this particular agong or king, his term, I think, is ending next year. So he's got one year time, you know, to, to get a, part, a royal pardon. I would hope anyway, for justice sake, that the king would not relent to his family connection with the Razak family but rather to uphold justice, you know, for the sake of Malaysia. Yeah, although, you know, the Pahang Sultan or the, the Pahang royalty has a reputation that is not as glorious <laughs> uh, in many aspects, uh, one of which is related to logging and also the Linus radioactive waste sump. Get on to that in a minute. We're talking about the one MDB. It's a huge amount of money, isn't it? It's not just peanuts. Absolutely. No, no. It's like 12.5 billion US. And in Malaysian dollars, that's a huge amount of money for the country. And 8.5 billion were involved in it. And it is leaving a huge debt for the country to repay. From my understanding, the court was able to recover some... 3 billion out of the 12. Yeah, much of the money has been distributed. It's difficult to recover all of it, but the amount that was handed through Goldman Sachs has largely been uh, recovered. And also the gifts that was generously given to celebrities, including people like DiCaprio and also uh, our own model, Miranda Curl. Those gifts were given on behalf of Najib through the guy who is the front man for the 1MDB investment scandal. His name is Jolo, and he's still being pursued by the police. We believe that he's hiding somewhere in China. So they're not likely to be able to find him? Likely unless the Chinese government decided to drop him in or cease protecting him. You mentioned a moment ago Linus Leitan. There has been movement on the the plan to yes. build a plant outside of maybe Kalgoorlie or in that area in Western Australia. Can you explain yes. what's happening? 
Yes, actually, back in 2019, the Malaysian government had already issued, well, renewed Linus operating license with several conditions. In fact, four of them. Uh, one of them is for Linus to cease operating in Malaysia to produce more radioactive waste from July this year. And, you know, at that time, even before then, Linus has negotiated with the city of Kalgoorlie Boulder to build a leaching and cracking plant in Kalgoorlie Boulder. And as we know, Kalgoorlie has historically been linked to gold mining and, you know, different type of mining activities. And from my understanding, interacting with some of the Kalgoorlie residents who are not happy with the plan, they say that the plan was actually hatched between Linus and now uh, resigned or sacked mayor who's kind of linked up with mining businesses to subcontracting and what have you. So the plan is now nearly completed in Kalgoorlie Boulder, not far from the town. And it has some more stringent criteria as compared to the one in Malaysia. But the people in Kalgoorlie are still not satisfied with it because they will have to bear with uh, truckloads of uh, liners, uh, you know, rare earth materials going through their town and also truckloads of the radioactive waste going through their town to get back to Malweld, my near Leverton. So by right, liners should have completed the plant so that when its operation ceases in uh, Malaysia in July, it can start doing it in Kalgoorlie Boulder. But uh, Linus is kind of taking its time because it's so used to pushing Malaysia around to allow it to operate, you know, whenever and wherever it likes it uh, and with very lax waste management regime as compared to Australia. So as you may know, last May, Malaysia had its federal election and Anwar Ibrahim, which has been waiting to, to become PM, finally was installed as the Prime Minister late last year. And he formed a government through a very precarious partnership or alliance or coalition with the Barisan National, the National Front Coalition or AMNO. So, yeah, Anwar Ibrahim the Prime Minister, his government is formed through a very fragile type of uh, coalition known as the Unity Government. Amno has always been prone Linus, and so is PATH, which is the Islamic Party, because where Linus is in Malaysia is actually one of uh, PATH's heartland. So it is being used politically. And Anwar Ibrahim, although, you know, had vowed to shut down Linus because of the toxic hazard had made a, a, a compromise, firstly, to his um, Minister for Science, Technology and Innovation in February to reinforce the four conditions on Linus. And that kind of given Linus enough time to appeal against those four conditions. The four conditions include, you know, relocate, uh, stopping the, the operations that generate more further radioactive waste, no longer allow the import Lanternite concentrate, which in itself is slightly radioactive, plus a few couple of others. But 
you know, since Linus's appeal, the minister last week has um, made his decision to allow for another six months extension to Linus. So, in in, in essence, Linus could you know continue to operate until the end of the year and generating even more radioactive waste. And what will become of that radioactive waste is the contentious issues for the public. Linus has put forward a proposal to build a radioactive waste dump in the pit swamp next to the plant. And the contract, the subcon- the contract has been granted without any public tender to a company that's owned by the royalty in Bahang. So that's where the connection, the political connection, and the man- yeah, and the manipulation, I guess, to allow Linus to operate in Malaysia under very lax regulatory kind of regime. So it looks like the people of Malaysia are going to have to learn to live with radioactive waste on their doorstep. Well, I don't think anybody can actually learn to live with radioactive waste. I know for a fact that the Safe Malaysia Stopliners and also Friends of the Earth Malaysia have taken the case to the court by appealing against the Environmental Impact Assessment Report presented by Linus for the radioactive waste dump. So that there are still legal avenues to be pursued to find reject the waste dump. And Linus' original license is, a condition is, if the waste has no suitable location in, in Malaysia for disposal, it will have to remove it from the country. It's a possibility, but it's going to be very difficult to get Linus to do that. Lee Tan, how much money do you believe the Malaysian government has put into this plant in Malaysia of Linus? I mean, Linus has been granted a 12-year tax break back in 2009, which essentially means that even though he's making profit, it's not paying a single cent to Malaysia. And of course, you know, all the environmental services, even though, you know, the, the enforcement is lax, uh, by and large, there are still personnel employed by the Ma- Malaysian Authority, specifically to oversee the Linus operation. So, yeah, there are substantial amount of taxpayers' money. It's not counted nor measured so far. And all the executive review committees and what have you, you know, that has gone into trying to find a way into dealing the, with the Linus issue, all of those costs have not been added together. I would say that it is a, a substantial amount. And a country like Malaysia has no capacity yeah, or political will to tackle the radiation hazards. And the, the type of radiation hazards we talked about we, uh, associated with Linus is a long-term, you know, permanent type of hazard. The radioactive dose may be low, but they are the thorium and uranium left in the waste, together with some of the other toxic elements, have long-term permanent impact on people's health, and they're cumulative. They are cancer-causing agents by and large. And, and if the waste dump goes ahead, despite the, the civil society objections, uh, it will mean that future generations will have to deal with it when the dump fails to contain the hazards. And as it is, you know, I'm very sure that pollution has already occurred because 
even in Linus' own environmental impact assessment, river water and also seafood were found to be contaminated with radionuclides. So, you know, it is the pollution has already occurred, but because the authorities do not release monitoring data and they themselves have no capacity to carry out the monitoring or to do the test, so the public has no idea. No idea what's happening and how bad it is. You know, that is particularly poor, bad in terms of this type of hazard. Without knowledge, people would take it for granted, assuming that everything is safe. And definitely within the local area, the Islamic Party, because many of their members got jobs from liners, are basically saying that you know it is safe and it's fine. And it's that kind of callous attitude that has contributed to you know future generation suffering the impact from this type of uh, radioactive toxic legacy. How much have Australian taxpayers put into liners? The amount is probably more than the 30 million that the Morrison government committed into giving to liners for its uh, for its plant or uh, in Kalgoorlie Boulder to build this uh, leaching and cracking plant. But you know, apart from that, I have no figures onto other cops that might have already been given to Linus. They've got another six months, Linus, get their act together? Yeah. I think the plant in Kalgoorlie Bodhi is, is nearly ready because we had had input into the EIA last year. It takes time for the plant to be commissioned or to be in full operation. My only clarification is when the Morrison government granted $30 million to for Linus because rare earth is considered a critical and strategic mineral. But even that is actually poorly considered in that sense that there are many types of rare earth and Linus rare earth are mainly of the light variety which are already in oversupply and fetching very low prices in the market. And also, there's a lot of talk about China using the rare earth as a uh, geopolitical weapon against the West because China is a monopoly or a near monopoly of rare earth element supply. But in reality, back in 2014, the WTO had already ordered China not to impose any quota or to seize any of its exports of rare earth elements and the supply chain to the other country. So in effect, there isn't a, a Chinese control of the rare earth. The WTO's ruling has basically put that, you know, out of the question. So a lot of this is mainly politically trump up kind of excuses to allow mining companies to mine at very low standards and also at the expense of the environment, public health, and also the, the taxpayer. And many thanks to Lee Tan. The American military has unfettered access to any base in Australia. And really, we need a massive global campaign to drive the private sector out of the arms industry. It is insane that we have the largest industry in the world where there is a private vested interest in what? War. We want peace. 
We want to respect people in other countries, not to invade their countries. What it does do is put Australia in America's front line against China. This is a war that they're actually gearing up for. It's just awful to even say that. Building nuclear submarines is an act of aggression and war. No to war. No to nuclear submarines. No to AUKUS. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Wondering how to pay your donations to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us exactly which program you'd like your donations to go towards. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au/donate. CR, stay tuned, stay radical. It's well known that when people reach the age of 100, others in many places and walks of life pause to offer congratulations. But it's not the case with US citizen Henry Kissinger. Quoting one report, 
much of the world views Kissinger as a war criminal. Yet in the US, he is surrounded by powerful friends, fated as a celebrity intellect. I've invited academic and writer Binoy Kampmark to review this long life and the consequences for millions of people around the world. Well, uh, yes. Uh, so when it comes to people who become centenarians, it's a chance to reflect, of course, of what they've done, uh, longevity and so forth. These are things to be admired in many ways, but I can't help but feel that in the case of one H.A.K., Henry A. Kissinger, these have to be seen in qualified terms, very heavily qualified terms. Uh, he is, after all, a man who, as I like to say, is at large. He has not accounted for many of the things he did whilst he was national security advisor in a couple of U.S. administrations and also secretary of state. He's, of course, most famously associated with, uh, you know, that uh, other wicked counterpart of his, uh, Richard Nixon, and uh, he'll always be associated with certain grand things in diplomacy, but uh, one of the things we can never forget is the absolute devastation and the traumas that his rule, or his reign, as it were, inflicted upon the world in various parts, and several continents, in fact. Could you expand on that for me? Let's put it this way. It, it all begins essentially from his background as you know, in, in history and international relations, when he put forth his doctoral dissertation, he ended up being published in a book in 1957, and he was looking at the idea of his view of realism, essentially, and that, that's, I think, the very key word. He always liked sort of being obsessed with what he considered to be a, a modern version of the prince, the statesman Metternich, who was a famous Austrian diplomat, and the idea was that if you have certain pieces, if you like, of the geopolitical stage, if you have uh, certain aspects of power in place, then it contains those nasty impulses to be free and to be de democratic and all those things. And I think that's the key to understand Kissinger. Kissinger was never, and, and any suggestion otherwise, I always find disingenuous. He was never a democrat. He was never interested in democracy. He made it very clear, for example, when uh, Salvador Allende uh, in Chile won the election, he said famously that essentially the Chilean people, of course, have given their democratic voice, and I'm paraphrasing here, that we must make sure to redirect it. So it's very clear that for him, democracy only worked as long as it delivered the correct outcome for U.S. political interests. So back to the original premise here with his idea of realism, uh, he essentially saw pieces in place for reasons of stability, and he would sacrifice, quite frankly, anything in the context of that. And of course, we need to remember that he was uh, operating the times of the Cold War, and everything that was advancing U.S. interests would be tolerated. Everything that was diminishing those of uh, the Soviet Union would be, of course, also encouraged. So... Everything fell by the wayside, you know, and, and of course, when it came to be it elections, be it secret campaigns, you know, he's also associated, of course, with the, uh, you know, being part of. He obviously didn't have the authority to give the command on it, but uh, the secret bombings in Laos and Cambodia as part of the way of undermining the North Vietnamese regime 
all of these things are very much part of his modus operandi. So he is a, a remarkably cynical individual um, and has absolutely no remorse for the things that he did. Also, in Africa, what was he up to there? Yes. So in the context of the African um, manner, so we, we need to also see this in the way that the United States pursued what would be called, and in fact was called, rollback. In the 1950s, there was a famous document called NSC 68. NSC 68 was drafted by Paul Nitzer, and it's usually associated with the advocacy for pursuing the hydrogen bomb experiment, the idea of developing the H bomb, as it was called, the super. But it was more than that. It was a program to roll back revolutions taking place in, for example, Africa, uh, other parts of the world, but primarily Africa uh, and into China. That's one of the reasons why the United States took such an interest in sending troops to end of Vietnam. It was the idea that these kind of post-colonial you know, independence movements had to be checked. Uh, and largely because there was a fear of communism, there was a fear that these countries would go red. Uh, total ignorance, of course, of uh, nationalism, total ignorance of the local conditions. So in the African context, uh, Kissinger can be found essentially justifying, for example, the, the murders of uh, various African independence leaders, uh, you know, and the installation and stalling of individuals such as Mobutu, of course, in uh, Zaire, or the, the old Zaire, now sort of part of the broader Congo, uh, and of course, these kind of extraordinary figures were backed by the likes of Kissinger because he thought, okay, we need to do something to prevent any Soviet advance. Um, and it didn't really matter. The same thing in Angola, the same thing in the context there, anything perceived, be it Castro's intervention or be it uh, well, whatever it might have been, it didn't really matter for him because in these instances, he was backing the horse of, you know, Washington's horse, which was obviously that of capitalism, mineral interests, and so on. So everything had to go by the wayside. You mentioned Chile, but it went a lot further than that in South America, didn't it? He was involved with Operation Condor. Yes, for your listeners, um, and I'm sure many of them are familiar, but Operation Condor was one of his uh, most uh, grotesque uh, operations uh, involving the whole swathe of military dictatorships and authoritarian regimes in Latin America. It, it's worth noting in, in uh, the context of uh, Latin American history, of course, that it, it comes in cycles uh, and now is a bit of a revenge on U.S. foreign policy insofar as governments are turning to the left in dramatic fashion. And you see that, you know, in Brazil, you see that in other countries too. And um, Condor was essentially a program agreed upon by a whole series of Latin American dictatorships, military dictatorships primarily. The idea was that uh, the left would be snuffed out. So any progressive intellectuals, students, families, you name it, they were captured, they were kidnapped, abducted, they were tortured, they were murdered. You know, they used that, that sort of term disappeared, which sort of sounds like um, Alice in Wonderland, but it implies murder. And a lot of these things were, well, they were signed off on Kissinger insofar as he was the one who approved fully. And you have to remember that each one of these particular regimes, the Brazilian, the Argentinian, the Venezuelan, all of these particular regimes that were put, or Guatemala more specifically, that were put in place, were trained by CIA officers. 
you know, the notorious engineer school of South America and so on. So these, uh, it's very important to realize that Kissinger not just approved of it, but uh, there are numerous notes endorsing the kind of policies used essentially to prevent any left-wing, uh, not even usurpation, just, just, just democratic elected individual. It's, it's, it's extraordinary when one thinks about the extent that he had no interest in the context of the will, the so-called sovereign will you know, of individuals. And of course, in South America, he was quite happy to pose for photos with people like Pinochet. Well, totally, yes. I mean, if the fact of the matter is he, he's part of that grand tradition that doesn't see morality as entering into the equation. You know, he never did. He's, um, you know, uh, mind you, of course, uh, that said, he's very happy to selectively pursue it. His opposition, for example, to anything accounting to you know, individual accountability in the international stage. He's famously an opponent of the International Criminal Court. So in the context of, um, you know, Henry Kissinger's uh, issue of selective morality, you know, he has this idea that the International Criminal Court should not supplant the, the U.S. judicial system. The U.S. has the best ideas when it comes to justice in his view, uh, and uh, no foreign personnel should ever be subject to an international body. He also claims essentially that statecraft should not be subjected to the keenness of the judicial eye, you know, the idea that judges should intrude upon these things. And that's, of course, very much a selective, a self-selective thing because he's mindful and very mindful of the fact that if he goes to certain countries, he could be nabbed under what's called universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction applies to certain crimes of international law known as, for example, genocide. And it is, uh, there is something to be said, and you know, admittedly he's never been convicted about it, so I'm careful to put it in appropriate terms. But the fact of the matter is that there is a lot to be said about his actions, his contributing if not to war crimes in a general sense, and specific ones certainly like genocide. And if that's the case, he could technically, for example, arrive in Australia. And um, even the Australian various codes in the Australian context, certainly the Commonwealth Crimes Act has a provision dealing with genocide. So it, it's one of those interesting things that were he to come to certain countries, he could be nabbed on that point. But in the broader sense, Kissinger has never had a problem turning up in the company of individuals who are soaked in blood. I mean, that's, that's not, it's never bothered him and uh, his uh, company, his uh, consultancy company, has absolutely no qualms advising whatever regime on the planet in terms of investment, security, and whatnot, the so-called Kissinger Associates. And that, that's another story, that, that whole business about what that particular company does, but it's very much in keeping with the Kissinger way of operating. Well, just stay with that phrase, not letting morality enter into the occasion. I'd like to go back to Cambodia. It's written that he advised Nixon on the secret bombing of Cambodia and that over five years, full five years, 150,000 civilians were killed and that this laid the path for the growth of the Khmer Rouge. It's very hard to dispute the fact that the uh, destabilisation uh, through the bombings uh, kept from Congress. It's very important to note that these authorizations were designed to evade congressional approval. And I think it's very much part of the 
the Kissinger uh, Nixon legacy too. I mean, people get very excited these days about Trump, and and this is not for me to say that you know Trump was uh, during his time in office was a was a lesser evil, but but he was certainly a cartoonish devil relative to Nixon and Kissinger, this this um, nefarious duo, because what they did was consciously seek out and consciously put in essentially in conversations, which were, of course were taped. And one just needs to listen to the so-called telcons, the conversations that were then transcripted about uh, these particular things. And uh, the idea was that we need to make sure that Congress does not know. We need to make sure that uh, the U.S. citizenry doesn't know, and for that matter, anybody else, that in order to get the North Vietnamese back to the table, the negotiations table, and remember, Originally, Nixon, with Kissinger's help, sabotaged the Paris peace discussions that were being held during the Lyndon Johnson administration. And that's a very important point, because Kissinger went to tell the South Vietnamese delegation, um, essentially tell them, don't make peace terms with the North Vietnamese um, and reach peace here. We have a better deal when we win office. You know, they were fairly confident that they'd win office. So once Nixon gets into power, of course, having then sabotaged the Paris peace talks that would have ended the war in 68-69, we then have war for five years, it's prolonged, and we also have the secret bombing campaign in Laos and Cambodia. And during the course of this time, yes, 150,000 is a a conservative estimate. Uh, There is some reporting that was made recently, published in The Intercept recently, that suggests that the number may even be larger and also more horrific in terms of what was done. It's not just, um, you know, B-52s bombing uh, supply trails for the North Vietnamese army uh, through Cambodia. It could also be that helicopter gunships and even U.S. personnel were extensively deployed uh, in mop-up operations. So the picture is even more ghastly than that. And all through this time, numerous uh, conversations between Nixon and Kissinger take place by which uh, the the issue is that uh, this is really great because it's going to get the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, that is back to the negotiations table. So that's that's part of that horrific chapter, which, of course, did very much to undermine uh, not just U.S. congressional oversight, but uh, the system of government in the United States. So for all one says about Trump, the, the rot set in actually rather earlier than, than his uh, particular rule. It happened during the Nixon era, which has been rightly called in many ways the imperial presidency. And what was he doing in the Middle East? Well, again, we have the same thing. We have the issue of um, signals to the Israelis, uh, um, you know, the backing of uh, regimes in terms of the context of oil. What mattered for for Kissinger fundamentally, again, was keep the Soviets out, make sure that they're not involved in um, anything to do with the oil trade, you know, try to limit it and so far, make sure that the the third world is contained um, and make sure they don't go red and back any regime that's going to be part of that particular system and so forth. And of course, um, under, you know, the Kissinger era, Israel was somewhat emboldened because in many ways you could argue that uh, first and foremost uh, Israel felt more confident, but it was also important to note that Kissinger was 
making sure that, uh, and in fact, uh, told Nixon and then subsequently, you know, with Ford, that uh, don't be shy about using or, you know, brandishing the nuclear option and things like that. So, again, we've got a situation where literally the sky is the limit on this with, with, uh, with what Kissinger was proposing, what he was doing, what he was advising. He always was, you know, right up till now, this, the, the true Iago of the administrations he said. And tiny East Timor, he had a finger in the pie there. Yes, uh, again, and, and of course, this links back rather well to the Australian context, uh, insofar as, you know, it, it's very hard to imagine that the Indonesian military, the, and, and certainly with, uh, you know, the officials and individuals such as Suharto and so on, it's very hard to imagine that they would have gone ahead without the green light given by the administrations in the United States. Kissinger was a key figure, and of course he, he saw it as, uh, again, you know, the, um, that, that kind of concern that also was felt in Canberra, you know, in Australia, that, well, what sort of government will be installed in a post-Portuguese East Timor? And, well, is it better then to let the Indonesians essentially colonize it? So, you know, ironically, and, and it, even though he is, of course, uh, the great figure, of reform in Australia, you know, Gough Whitlam. Gough Whitlam was certainly a figure very much on the side of the Indonesians on this, and he certainly was happy, along with likes of Kissinger. And remember, both Whitlam and Kissinger were also part of the, paradoxically, <laughs> uh, recognizing China as well, part of the drive to recognize the People's Republic of China as the legitimate Chinese government. You know, but when it came to the neighborhood, so to speak, when it came to um, East Timor, we were back to this old problem. What happens in uh, the post-colonial or the decolonized setting? Far better to have a regime that either controls these uh, silly Marxist revolutionary elements and a Fretlin and so on, of course, but, um, certainly to the left and certainly affiliated with um, um, shall we say, you know, Marxist, communist, whatever sort of elements you want to sort of take the brushstroke on. And the fact of the matter is that by virtue of doing that, uh, these movements were crushed and uh, the Indonesians were very happy to then go forth and essentially annex East Timor, which led to the catastrophe of, you know, essentially a quarter of a million dead and so on, of which your listeners, I'm sure, are aware. Well, rather than talk about the places that he did get involved with, which are the parts of the world that he wasn't interested in? <laughs> That's a very good question. It's very hard to, to envisage. I mean, you know, when I think about looking at his record and so on, uh, he, let's put it this way. The way to understand Kissinger was that everywhere that there might have been a Soviet involvement, he would be interested in. So it didn't matter. Um, all of his conversations, all of his dispatches, all of his notes and discussions deal with, you know, what ultimately is the Soviet involvement, where, that, where are they involved, um, what are they going to do. Uh, and this is part of, again, the chess pieces and how one maneuvers these particular things. So given the global scope, of course, of the Cold War, virtually every continent interested him. Maybe, you know, I'd say uh, at a pinch, you know, maybe not so much Antarctica, but essentially every other part of the world interested him insofar as anything that would disrupt the pattern would be um, considered important. 
And, I, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, he did uh, ultimately suggest to Nixon. Nixon claims, of course, it was his idea. Kissinger, of course, claims it was his idea. But uh, it's the, the, coup, the thawing of relations with China and then recognizing China, because that was part of the strategy to undermine the Soviet Union, because there was a feeling at that particular point, and Kissinger, at least to give him credit on that score, he did not necessarily see the U.S. as you know, maintaining its power. You know, the, you know, it had to accept at some point that there would be other powers and China being potentially one of them. So in that particular sense, he was at least, he did have sufficient foresight to realize that this notion of keeping China out of the diplomatic fray was just a nonsense. And eventually this, this weird offshoot, namely Formosa or Taiwan, where you had, you know, the deposed or the defeated general Chiang Kai-shek with his Kuomintang forces there representing the mainland, China was just absurd. So at least he, he did acknowledge that. But it was also part of a strategy of getting at the Soviet Union to, to split, as it were, these powers in the context of what was called détente. And so the idea was you reach an understanding. You know, we don't like each other necessarily, but we also appreciate that we have our various zones of influence. And that's again back to his Metternich idea you know, from the 19th century, the Congress of Vienna, and these ideas that you have in place systems which curtail violence or curtail the prospect of unsettling the order, as it were. Well, bring me up to the present time with the war in Ukraine. I'd imagine at a 100 years old, he's slowing down a bit, but I'm quite sure there's plenty of people asking his advice. Oh, absolutely, and he's very happy to provide it, solicited or unsolicited. That's <laughs> Kissinger's very happy to offer. Although these days, it's generally not a case of being unsolicited because remember, each word he he utters costs money. So he's one of those individuals who charges by probably not even the word, but by the letter. And he is one who um, is very much of the case that yes, uh, eventually, uh, when it comes to say Ukraine, he. You know, and there is something to be said about this, and as um, you know, much of a blood-soaked demon that he is. So there's something to be said about, you know, the perception that yes, some kind of peace accord has to be eventually reached. It's not a sustainable state of affairs. Ukraine is never going to win outright in the war. Uh, Russia is going to be fighting tooth and nail, and it's very hard to see how they're necessarily going to, for example, give up Crimea. To give you an example there. So he's saying that eventually there has to be some kind of understanding, and he, he shares this tradition or this idea along with other so-called realist international relations specialists, if you like, like uh, John Mearsheimer and so on, that eventually something has to give. Um, and it's, there, there will not be such a thing as total defeat or total victory. There has to be some kind of understanding there that uh, territory will probably have to change hands. And this is, of course, terrible for those who claim that this sounds like appeasement. But Kissinger is more or less just of the view that, yes, at some point, something will have to be done. And it's simply not a sustainable state of affairs happening there. Well, just finally, Benoit, we might call him a war criminal. You might call him a, a blood-soaked demon. But in the US, he's revered. Yes, yes, he is, he is very much so. Um, he's got uh, essentially a whole cabal of hagiographers, and for those uh, listeners who 
just need to be reminded what that means, essentially myth makers, you know, people or, or writers of saints, you know, and essentially what has happened with, uh, with Kissinger is that he's developed and cultivated, very importantly, a fan club over the years that has given the impression that he's some kind of master strategist and genius. Well, he, if he was such a master strategist, uh, he would not have, and that goes back to a point you made earlier, he, his, he would not have necessarily engineered the coming to power in, inadvertently, but nonetheless part of it, the coming to power of the Khmer Rouge and the massacre of a million people in the context of the Khmer Rouge uh, rule uh, ultimately ended by all people by the North Vietnamese, so the very individuals that he suggested should be bombed to smithereens. So the fact of the matter is with Kissinger, he, he's over the years managed to give the impression that he's some kind of genius. But I always remember in the, this particular review of one of his books on diplomacy, and I always tell my students that, or anyone who says that he's this masterful in this, is that his books have also been aided by the assistance of those indentured workers known as graduate students. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> when I've read a few book reviews, those particular students have been thanked <laughs> profusely saying that, uh, yes, uh, Kissinger's work is interesting all the more for the fact that it was written by others. Uh, some words to that effect. So I think it's important to keep that in mind, too, that he essentially is revered, but it's very much of a self-cultivation. He's very much mindful of what Winston Churchill said himself about Chamberlain, uh, you know, of course, the, the man he ultimately succeeded and, uh, you know, in, in World War II. Churchill said about Chamberlain, I know how you'll be treated in history because I will write it. So Kissinger is very mindful. He writes his own history. He's, he's very careful about that. Huge tomes, door stop stonkers, you know, door stopping stonkers. You know, and, and, and that's what he does. And he's managed to create this notion. He's got uh, this uh, one of his hagiographers, a person who I know, not, not personally, but I'm fairly acquainted with, Niall Ferguson. You know, one of those uh, characters who just says, what a marvelous man and absolute genius. Well, he, he's not. So he made terrible errors. You know, he, his policies you know, and, and what he endorsed led to the deaths of millions. So, yes, in terms of a war criminal, there's a lot to be said about that. You know, for all his problems, Christopher Hitchens, when he, he, he did embrace the neocon angle later in his life. But Hitchens was absolutely right when it came to suggesting that there's a lot to be said about Kissinger ending up in The Hague one way or the other. Um, and, well, we, we can live to see the day, but uh, we'll have to see what happens in that, on that score. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. It's a pleasure, Jan. Anytime, anytime. And Benoit Campmark is a lecturer at RMIT University and also a writer. Disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on JobSeeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a born old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 
3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. To donate, call 039-419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Qualitops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Stay tuned, stay radical. If you're marooned, take a sabbatical. It might get lampooned, it might have ballooned. But 3CR heals all wounds, it's indefatigable. I bet you swooned, or I never crooned. Since the days of wine and roses pruned, no one's immune. Stay tuned. Stay radical! You know what to do. Donate to the Radiothon by calling 94198377 or going to 3cr.org.au and help keep us on air. Dad, shut up already! We're not meant to have anything nuclear in our country. It's really important and urgent that, that Australia get serious about nuclear disarmament. Well, nobody anywhere on the planet has figured out how to deal with highly radioactive waste. Most of those who've managed nuclear weapons consider this to be the most dangerous time that we've ever lived in, with the danger of nuclear war at unprecedented levels. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. On Saturday the 24th of June, a musical event will be held at The Howler, a converted warehouse in Dawson Street, Brunswick, to raise funds for the Refugee Action Collective, Rock for Refugee Rights. To find out more, I spoke with activist with RAC, Tom Freebig. Tom, when we speak of refugees, Australia has a history of cruel treatment, whether or not refugees have reached our shores. A large group which is hidden from Australian eyes are those in migration centres and other places in Indonesia. One estimate I saw was that there's almost 14,000 refugees 
and asylum seekers trapped there, where the impact of Australia's border policies continue to reverberate. Are those figures that you can substantiate? I'm actually unsure how many refugees are there due to the policies of the Australian government, but it's it's clearly in the in the hundreds and thousands. There's about 14,000 refugees in Indonesia that have been there for some 10 years or even even longer since the German government's ban on accepting uh, refugees from Indonesia uh, under the former liberal government. So about a, a large proportion of those are refugees from um, Afghanistan, but there's also a large minority of refugees also from Sudan who are fleeing the current civil war that's that's happening there, as well as other demographics. And as you were saying, they are living in really uh, dire conditions there. They're not allowed to, to work there. They don't have any access to welfare or support. So essentially, they're living in, in poverty and limbo for years on end. Has the Australian government accepted any of them over the years? So the Australian government has, has had a ban on, on accepting UNHCR refugees from Indonesia. So there may be few individuals, but, but in general, as far as I'm aware, no refugees from, from Indonesia who have um, been registered with the UNHCR in Indonesia have, have actually made it to Australia. And the present Labor government has accepted that policy? The present Labour government has continued that policy. In the Labour Party platform, it has a commitment to uh, positively take steps to to consider refugees uh, in Indonesia, but we haven't seen uh, any action on that yet. Um, And there's no indication that that will, will actually change at all for the refugees that are there. How many people are now forced to live in PNG, even though they're not in a concentration camp, they're in PNG against their will. Do you know how many? So in terms of the refugees that are in Australia's former offshore detention centres, those numbers are slowly decreasing as, as refugees either have been getting resettlement overseas, but this has been happening at a far too slow uh, rate. So at, at the moment, in terms of refugees that are that are in Nauru and PNG. Those numbers are, are quite small, but there's still people there and they've they should have the right to, to permanently resettle in, in Australia. And in a sense I suppose New Zealand has shamed Australia by taking some of those refugees and they've settled in New Zealand very well. Mm, so the, New Zealand has taken some refugees, but even with the New Zealand deal, that, that is something that uh, they were meant to take 150 refugees, and that was uh, a year over over four four years, I believe. That's also been very, very slow, but no, that's absolutely correct. New Zealand has also been shaming Australia. Where we've seen the big biggest changes, the, the reason why now the offshore detention centres have less refugees and why we've seen uh, limited, I guess, changes for, for refugees in regards to refugees on temporary protection visas, of which there are 19,000 now being on a path to, to permanent visas, is, I think, um, due to the massive social movement 
and, and protests that happened around the the hotels and under the Morrison government, which also put put Labour on a bit of bit of pressure to try to actually relate to that growing uh, pro refugee sentiment. So that's where a lot of that, where the the Medivac bill came in, and where those Medivac evacuations, and then as well as the freeing of the refugees from the hotels. Next big thing will be a fight for uh, permanent visas for all refugees, not just refugees on temporary pr- protection visas, but but around the other. 12 or 12,000 on bridging visas. At the same time, the, the infrastructure of offshore detention is, is still existing. So even if the offshore detention is completely emptied, the government has put in another couple hundred million dollars into actually maintaining that infrastructure just in case boats do start, that they have somewhere that they can continue the, the system of indefinite detention and, and torture of, of refugees. So it's very much... a um, still a lot the refugee movement has, has to fight for, and that's, that's one of the tasks of groups like the Refugee Action Collective and actually educating people around what, what's actually the situation of, of refugees, both onshore in precarious situations of poverty-inducing bridging visas, um, as well as refugees who are still, the numbers of refugees that are still in, in offshore, as well as the 14,000 in, in Indonesia. And then there's also a cohort of refugees who are still in detention uh, in Australia as, as well. So that's, uh, part of that is uh, Section 501. But then there's also um, another uh, Medivac refugee in Brisbane Immigration uh, Detention Center uh, as well, who uh, hasn't been released like many of the other Medivac refugees. So there's a lot of lots still to, to fight for. What's the Section 501? So Section 501 is, is uh, basically any non-citizens who have either had a criminal conviction or criminal, criminal charge with a sentence of over, possible sentence of over 12 months, or they've had their visa cancelled on character grounds. And so in that situation, so where the, where the immigration minister says, oh, you've associated with the wrong kinds of people, or you can even have your uh, visa cancelled if you've made attempts to flee detention or to, to escape from, from detention, then you you become a Section 501 and you, you are able to be indefinitely detained in onshore uh, detention centres awaiting deportation back to wherever your so-called home country is. So there's a section that, that includes prominent cohort of people from New Zealand, but also uh, elsewhere, uh, who were born in other places in our region, but also a cohort of refugees are amongst that as well. Tell me the difference between a temporary visa and a bridging visa. Bridging visa, the the kind of duration of time will vary, but often refugees are on these six-month bridging visas that restrict their, their right to work, right to receive welfare, the right to study. Temporary protection visas are, are also like unfair and discriminatory, but the, the situation for refugees on bridging visas is significantly worse and they're significantly more at risk of potentially being having their bridging visa cancelled or not re- renewed and then being um, either on no visa or, or deported. Take you back 
when the family, the Tamil family, who had been living in Biloela, were mm-hmm. finally allowed to go back home. A great lot of publicity. And I believe the Labor Party got a lot out of that, but what do you believe they've done since? So I think Labor really rode into the last federal election trying to appeal to a, a more positive kind of public sentiment towards refugees. And they used the, the Billowheeler family um, as a way to kind of uh, relate to that, but then also to, I think, obscure some of their fundamental commitments still to the Operation Sovereign Borders and the politics of offshore detention and, and, and deterrence. And so they have maintained and, and taken steps to fulfill their commitment to giving um, refugees on, on temporary visas permanency, which I think is, is significant, is massively significant for those that uh, population of, of refugees. But at the same time, they've, they've left a massive cohort of refugees behind. And unfortunately, a lot of the refugee movement, I think, did have some illusions in Labour as well around what would change under Labour. That hasn't been the case in the Refugee Action Collective, and that certainly hasn't been the case for refugee communities who've never stopped mobilising around permanency for all and an end to the operations of borders. But certainly not that much has fundamentally changed in terms of how Australia controls its borders and treats refugees who, who come by boat. And, of course, it's the people, again, who are kept out of the public eye, and that's those who travel in a boat to come to Australia, mainly, I believe, but maybe not so much so, from Sri Lanka. They are found by Australian authorities and sent back to Sri Lanka to a very uncertain future. I think that actually really revealed that that kind of contradiction and that, that Labour fundamental commitment to those policies when on the night of, of the election they actually returned a, a refugee boat, Tamil asylum seekers, back to, to Sri Lanka where the, there's been an ongoing um, Tamil genocide at the hands of the Rajapaksan um, government. And so that definitely needs to be exposed and uh, we need to continue building the protest movements on, on the street because that's where under Morrison, we saw those really significant, small but significant wins in terms of freeing the refugees in the hotels and, and so on. What are the main foci now for Refugee Action Collective? Next event that Refugee Action Collective has coming up is a Rock for Refugee Rights gig, June 24, subtitled End the Racist Policies, Welcome Refugees having a whole bunch of really good bands, pro-refugee bands, Ajakwai, Jolistics, Jack Parsons from the Pretty Littles, Belly Savellas and Riff Raff Radical Marching Band, as well as refugee speakers and activist speakers. It is at the Howler in Brunswick on uh, June 24, doors opening at 7.30, so you can find those uh, details online. Refugees attend for free and Student prices are $33 and general admission is $38. Um, essentially, it's a night where we 
to, to educate the general public in a, in a more in a fun and, and accessible way about what's happening for refugees. And then we're also trying to promote rally on July 22, which is the weekend um, after the 10-year anniversary of, of Kevin Wright announcing that no asylum seeker who arrived by boat would be resettled in Australia. Really important rallies as well, where we're calling for an end to offshore processing. Um, we're calling for resettlement for the refugees trapped in Indonesia, and we're calling for permanent visas uh, for all. And we're also looking for lots of in- endorsements from different organisations for that uh, rally as well, because we want that to be as as big and as broad as possible. Do you need to book for the night on the twenty fourth? So for the 24th, you can get tickets on the night, but you can also book in advance via moshticks.com.au. Which street in Brunswick is it in? Our gig is, will be held at Howler uh, in Brunswick, which is on 711 Dawson Street in Brunswick, and that's really close to the uh, train station as well. Good. Oh, well, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you and put that date and venue in your diary, the 24th of June at number 7 Dawson Street, Brunswick. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Wage theft is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Thank you.